0: Thank you to our music team. Appreciate it. That last song has been one of my favorites since Andrew Peterson wrote it a few years ago, so I appreciate that one especially. Uh, The children can be dismissed at this time. Let me ask you, if you will, please, to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, verses 1 to 12 is our passage for this morning as we continue to look at the showdown between Jesus and the religious leaders in the temple during the last week of his earthly ministry before his death and resurrection. It's a passage that tells us the story of Israel's history, most especially the religious leaders of Israel's history and their rebellion against God and the the depth of their own sinfulness and wickedness, and yet the reality that God will not be stopped by the sinfulness and the wickedness of man. Please follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress. And built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat And some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, as we come to your word, we need your help. And so we ask for it. And because we are your sons and your daughters we know and trust that you will give us this help that we need not just to know the facts about your word not just to know the historical reality of your plan of redemption but to see Jesus that's what we want Lord open our eyes We want to see Jesus. Lord, as your weak servant, I pray that you would help me. We want to receive the food of your word and be nourished by Jesus. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes, as a Christian, it can feel like we're on the losing team. I was looking recently at some of the news headlines from the ministry, The Voice of Martyrs, which you may or may not know. Is a ministry that tracks the global church, specifically in regards to persecution, and also as a ministry that you can partner with to do things like write letters to faithful believers who are in prison. They make sure that they take care of our brothers and sisters in persecuted places. And so it's a faithful, great ministry. And I was reading some headlines recently from it. Some of these headlines were, or in some of these stories were about Christians in Afghanistan, when the Taliban took over, many of the Christians who were in Afghanistan fled the nation. In fact, many of the pastors who were there pastoring people fled the nation and now have, by God's grace, many, uh, a large influence in the Arabic world thanks to online ministry and their online presence. But some believers stayed in in Afghanistan, and you can imagine that life in Afghanistan in general has become quite difficult, but you can imagine that much more difficult for Christians. One frontline worker there said that persecution has escalated from the government, local religious authorities, family, and community, and it is still escalating. I read about the country of Algeria, where there's a government campaign since been going on since 2017 that is government funded and government sponsored in order to wipe out Christianity from their nation. Of the 47 total Protestant churches in the nation as a whole, it's reported that 30 of those Protestant churches have been shut down by the government. I read about a father and a daughter in India who were miraculously converted by the Lord as the Lord had healed this daughter who was born with, amongst other things, paralysis and and who by God's grace can now walk and ride her bike and speak the gospel to people. They were warned by Hindu extremists in their village to not preach the gospel anymore. They were told to be quiet or else, but they of course refused to do that. And on January 16th of 2023, just a few months ago, they were riding their bike home from a neighboring village, and some of those Hindus that warned them to stop speaking about Christ followed them in their car, hunted them down, and struck them with their vehicle as they rode their bike. They are, at least as far as I know, if they have survived, they, are, they were seriously injured and remain so. Those are just some of the many stories of the rejection of the gospel throughout the world. By God's grace, we don't really experience that persecution here. Yet at the very same time, we do experience the rejection of the gospel, don't we? We do experience the heartache that comes when people who we love so dearly reject Jesus Christ. Or if they won't reject him outright, they'll at least be passive toward him. They'll maybe be interested in Christianity when they have kids one day, because after all, if you want your kids to be moral, then you send them to Sunday school, right? Yet how long we've prayed for them, how much labor we have put into seeing their souls saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ, and yet the reality is they still have not yet come. And as we experience the pain of that in a fallen world, the reality is that it is tempting at times to feel as though we are on the losing team as Christians. But the reality is, the truth is, that we stand on the promises of God. The reality is, the truth is, that God wins and so do his people. And so from time to time, it's necessary for us to be reminded of these things, to be reminded of the truth of God's plan of redemption. We just sang in that song, does our God intend to dwell again with us? And we answered from scripture, he does. We understand that God made man initially and originally to be with him to walk with him, to see him, to experience his literal presence with them. And yet it was our sin that drove us out of the presence of God. God sent angels with flaming swords to block off his presence from them. And this is exactly what is represented then in the tabernacle and the temple that you cannot go into the holy of holies any time you want to because now the sin of mankind bars you, separates you, blocks you from the presence of God. But ever since the fall and even before, God was determined to do something about that. And this is why you see at the very end of your Bibles in the new heavens and the new earth, you see a garden that's even better than the Garden of Eden. You see a temple where God dwells. You no longer see the light of the sun because the glory of God outshines it. Does our God intend to dwell again with us? He does. The question then is, how? How will he once again dwell with us? How will we deal with the problem of our sin. As this showdown between Jesus and the religious leaders comprised of the, the representatives of the Sanhedrin in Mark chapter twelve continues, you'll remember it's a it's a continuation from the, the challenge that happened in the passage we studied last week, where they came to him uh, thinking that they had the authority and, and by man's standards they did have the authority in the temple, but not when the Son of God shows up. It's his temple. It's his city. And so they dare challenge the son of God. Who gave you the authority to do this? And in his divine authority, he outwits them. And he outsmarts them. But how does rebellious and wicked mankind, how does the sinful heart respond to such a challenge? Not in humility, but in pride in arrogance, in wickedness. And so as this showdown between Jesus and the leaders continues, Jesus begins to speak to them once again in parables. You remember from Mark chapter four why it was that Jesus spoke to them in parables. Mark four verses 10 says, and when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And verse 11 says, and he said to them, to you, has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. And then he told them why by quoting scripture, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Jesus takes up for the last time in his ministry the teaching of the parables, And he has a target. He puts the religious leaders in his crosshairs. And he fires with everything that he has. And in a miraculous display of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, although they weren't really supposed to understand, Jesus allows them to know enough about this parable, verse 12 says, to realize that he talked about them that this parable was not actually for them but this parable was against them and so this parable gives us an overview of Israel's rebellious history against God and yet at the very same time it gives us the overview of God's gracious plan of redemption That although Israel, the very people of God, tried to snuff out God's plan, it would not be stopped. And so I think as we walk through this passage then, we'll see four reasons that God's plan to save cannot be stopped four reasons that God's plan to save cannot be stopped. And we'll look at an overview of Jesus's intention to aim this at Israel. But the reality is every sinner responds this very same way. And so what I want to do is to highlight for us not so much the rebellion and the wickedness of Israel in Jesus's parable, but what I want to highlight for us is something far better. I want us to see the attributes and the perfections of God as he displays his plan of salvation to his people because the reality is God won't be stopped. And so reason number one that God's plan to save cannot be stopped comes to us in verses one to five and it is this, God's patience outlasts the sin of man. God's patience outlasts the sin of man. Verse one, Jesus continues in his dialogue in his really uh, denunciation of the religious leaders and he begins to speak to them in parables. And he tells this parable, a parable that mirrors Isaiah chapter five, a parable that all of Israel would have been familiar with, a parable that the religious leaders most especially would have been familiar with. And so he really almost quotes word for word Isaiah chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 he says a man planted a vineyard and what do you do when you plant a vineyard in those days well you put a fence around it you dig a pit for the wine press so that when you squeeze the juice out of the grapes it flows down into the pit so that you can get the wine and he built a tower a tower so that you can have someone guarding the vineyard but then also a tower that would provide the cool of the shade at the very same time And what does he do with his vineyard? He leased it to tenants, and he went into another country. And to us, that might sound a little bit strange, but that was actually a normal practice in Jesus's day. It's called tenant farming. And in fact, this was, I'm not sure if we still do this, but it was a common practice all throughout farming. Someone who has the wealth, the money, to be able to attain a plot of land, plant something like a vineyard, And notice how much care the man gave to his vineyard. This wasn't a half-hearted job. He wasn't a weekend warrior DIYer who just sort of duct tapes it together, right? He did everything that he was supposed to do because he loved his vineyard. And because this landowner was wealthy enough, he must have had business in another country. And so it was very common in Jesus' day, in fact, even uh, secular or or, uh, Jewish sources would use something very similar to this type of parable, because Israel was so familiar with it. He went to another country and he leased it out to tenants, and so they would work the land, they would yield the produce, they would live off the land and get a cut of it, but ultimately it belonged to the owner and the owner was, should have been given at least a portion of what really rightfully belonged to him. But the story continues in verse two, when the season came, that is the season for, for fruit, the season for the landowner to get the grapes that he had wanted could have been 4 or even 5 years. Old Testament law required that it be worked for 5 years before it produced fruit. The the picture here is that these tenants have been on the land for a long time and in today's vernacular they think that they have squatter's rights. You left it. Finders keepers, losers weepers. So they move in, they work the land and that when it comes time for the season, The owner, of course, sends a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Normal, completely normal. The owner sends a servant to get the fruit of the vineyard. The the servant is supposed to bring the fruit back. The tenants are supposed to gladly give what rightfully belongs to the owner. But verse three tells us how they actually responded. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Rather than give to the owner what the owner rightfully deserved, they thought it belonged to them. Perhaps they were confused and they didn't understand that this servant represented the owner, though that would have been a very poor excuse. This is not an act of ignorance, it's an act of defiance and rebellion. And perhaps the owner was wondering, scratching his head. Well, maybe they didn't realize that I was, he was sent in my, uh, in my own authority. And verse 4 tells us, and again, he sent to them another servant. What did they do to this servant this time? They struck him on the head and they treated him shamefully. So, in his great patience, the owner sends another. And this time, they escalated their violence to murder. They killed him. But notice Jesus' story continues. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. The owner wasn't going to stop there. The owner was determined to get what was rightfully his and he would continually send servants to the tenants in order to claim what rightfully belonged to him. What is this a picture of? It's a picture of the way that Israel treated her prophets. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 7 verses 25 to 26. The Lord says to them, from the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their father's. It isn't that what the parable highlights. Their violence increases. It becomes worse and worse and worse. Israel's track record was not good. They failed over and over again to respond to the word of God. And yet, at times when they did respond to the word of God, you think of something like the book of Judges. Judges. They would respond momentarily or perhaps for 40 or so years, but then what would happen? They would go right back to their idolatry. They would go right back to ignoring and rejecting the word of God. And what would God do? Well, God would send them another prophet who would warn them of the coming wrath of God, the judgment of God, but it would also remind them of God's grace and God's mercy. Who would let them know that if they would re- Would repent. In that very moment, God would turn away. He would relent his wrath, turn his anger, and he would be gracious to them again. He would send rain back onto the land. He would promise, or he would fulfill every promise that they gave to them if they would just be faithful to their end of the bargain. The writer of Hebrews picks up on this very same theme. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 36 to 38, he gives us an overview of how Israel treated God's servants. He says, Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two, which is what church history tells us, or history tells us that happened to Isaiah. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats Destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. And so Jesus tells this parable and aims it directly at the religious leaders who have come to confront him, ask him about what authority he's doing these things, and yet Jesus highlights for them their own wickedness. But think for a moment about the perspective of the owner. You might read this parable and and ask yourself, what is wrong with this owner? Why would you keep sending someone to them? I mean, once, okay, maybe, you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Once maybe, but twice, three times, and then again and again and again and again? You see, it's, it's, as we look at the scriptures and as we look at the history of Israel, we see obviously, glaringly, the sinfulness and the unfaithfulness of the very people whom God had saved, and yet what we see transcending all of that is the patience of God. And so for us as Christians, it's not so encouraging to look at the slaughtering of the prophets, is it? But it's deeply encouraging to look at the patience of God. This certainly gives us a window into Israel's sin, but it gives us a window into something so much more glorious into the very heart of God. It lets us see the patience of God in dealing with his people. That though they rebelled against him over and over and over again, he sent them his word through his servants over and over and over again. Can you think about God's patience to you, friend, as you look, about, as you, as you look on the, the timeline of your own life, can you see the patience of God extended to you over and over and over again? That time when you made that foolish decision to do something you knew you shouldn't have done and it could have very well killed you and yet God spared you. That time perhaps maybe when you shook your fist at God and yet God still let you breathe his air. I heard a story this week of a of a famous atheist of years past who would travel around speaking against Christianity and in one particular uh, speech of his, he said that, uh, He pulled out a pocket watch from his pocket, because that's where you keep pocket watches. And he said, for five minutes, I'm going to blaspheme God, and I'm going to prove that he does not exist because he's not going to strike me down. And so on and on, he went for five straight minutes, blaspheming God, so much so that at least some of the people in the crowd got so uncomfortable, they left. And at the end of that five minutes, the man stood there still alive and said, See, I told you, God does not exist. And when a faithful Christian heard that story, he said about that man, Was he so foolish to think that in five minutes he could exhaust the patience of God? You see, that's what sin does. It brings God down to your level thinking that somehow God is is like you in some way and that you can try to bend God to do your own will. You can test God. You can tempt God. But the reality is that God is God. 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 8 and 9 says this. To us, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Let me ask you, friend, are you here today? taking advantage of the patience of God. Have you heard the gospel over and over and over again and yet Jesus is just sort of something you do on Sundays? Hear Peter tell you Don't count the patience of God as slowness. If you're here today and you have never responded to the reality of your own sin, to the call to repent of that sin, to the call to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the fact that even though you are a sinner, Jesus Christ absorbed that sin, took on the Father's wrath on the cross for you, and then rose again in victory three days later to be vindicated by the Spirit of God to show that he is indeed the one and only Savior of the world, the one mediator between God and man. If you've never believed that message, friend, here's the truth. You don't know how much more God will be patient with you. Perhaps he'll be patient for years and years and years, but perhaps you won't even make it home today. But if you're here as a Christian, oh, dear friend, remember the patience of God with you so that you can then extend that very same patience toward others and that you can then be encouraged that even though the sinfulness of man still abounds, it will never outdo, it will never outlast God's patience. And so the first reason that God's plan to save cannot be stopped is because God's patience outlasts the sin of man. And then secondly, the second reason is because God's love overwhelms the sin of man. God's love overwhelms the sin of man. Verses six through eight. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. Now at this point in the story, we're listening and we're thinking to ourselves, what is wrong with this landowner? Why does he not just get an army together and go and slaughter the tenants? After all, he most likely has the money to hire a bunch of mercenaries. It's clear injustice. They're trying to take what's rightfully his. But how does the landowner respond? He says, okay, none of that worked. They didn't listen to my servants. But I have a son. And he's not just any ordinary son, he's a son whom I love. I love him dearly. I love him deeply. This son carries my authority. This son is, is the representative of me. I'll send him, and surely, surely they'll respect my son. He's the heir. The vineyard belongs to him. He's the rightful owner. Surely they'll respect him. But how do they treat the son? Verse seven says, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. And while you would expect to read this is the heir, we had better listen to him. The story continues. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. They see the heir coming and perhaps they think that because the heir has come and the owner has not come the owner is maybe dead the owner's not doing a whole lot to reclaim his vineyard Now the sun comes and if we can just kill the sun we've been on this land long enough that if we get rid of the heir then the inheritance will rightly fall to us instead of him So they take him and they kill him and they throw him out of the vineyard, verse eight says. No doubt, thinking to themselves, now it belongs to us, it's ours. We run the show. Do you remember what happened when the son rode in on a colt into Jerusalem? Jerusalem? He was lauded with praises, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. And then when he went into the temple, what did he see? He saw corruption and unfruitfulness, unfaithfulness. He saw evil and wickedness. They had taken his father's house and they had turned it into a den of robbers. And so what he did was curse it and clear it in order to make it crystal clear God was done with Israel. God was done with the temple. that now the meeting place of God with man is in Jesus. And yet, how did the religious leaders respond to Jesus? Verse 18 of chapter 11 says, the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. It's no question, is it, who Jesus is talking about in his parable. Who's the beloved son? Well, according to Mark chapter one, verse 11, at the baptism of Jesus, a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well-pleased. And then again at the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ on the top of the mountain when the disciples see him in all of his glory. Mark chapter 9 verse 7 says, and a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came from out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And yet how do the tenants treat the landowners beloved son? They conspire against him and they kill him and they throw his body out to be eaten by the birds. And yet, as we see the wickedness and the evil, the corruption of mankind, which is true not just of Israel's leaders, but which is true of every single person who is not in Christ, They have no interest in the claims of Jesus to be Lord. Everybody's fine with a Savior who can get them out of a jam every once in a while. But when Jesus says, I'm in charge, you obey me, you love me, you follow me, then they say either as wickedly as the leaders or as politely as anyone else, no thank you. And yet, the reality is that that is the very same attitude that these wicked tenants display. But yet again, what we see behind the ugliness and over top of the ugliness, sovereignly ordained, and even greater than the ugliness of man's sin, is the love of God. If you were the landowner, would you have sent your son? I wouldn't. No way. No way. We can feel the pain of that, can't we? And yet how much of a greater act was it when the Father sent the Son? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And why did he do it? For whosoever believes in him should not perish, but should have eternal life. You see, it was the love of God that overwhelmed the sin of man. Jesus tells this story, and it would have gotten in everyone's crawl it would have stirred up everyone to anger but it's a small picture of what the father did in sending his son and the reality is that even though it was the landowners that killed the son in this parable and even though it was the religious leaders who handed Jesus over to Rome in order to be crucified in reality the truth is it all was a divine act of God Acts twenty twenty three, 23, Peter preaches this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You see, from man's perspective, it seemed as though we killed Jesus, but from God's perspective, the death of Jesus was all part of his plan because the love of God will not be outdone by the sin of man. So then God's patience outlasts the sin of man. God's love overwhelms the sin of man. And our third reason that God's plan to save cannot be stopped is that God's wrath overtakes the sin of man. God's wrath overtakes the sin of man. Verse 9, Jesus says, What will the owner do? What will the owner of the vineyard do? And while Matthew tells us that the crowd responded with the right answer, Mark lets us know that Jesus didn't give them time to respond. He answered his own question. It was a rhetorical question. Jesus threw himself a softball so that he could hit it out of the park. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. We see an overlap here between the wrath of God and the mercy of God, but I want to focus first on the wrath of God. Of course, the landowner will do that to the tenants, right? It would be the right thing for him to do to do that to the tenants. If this landowner wants to seek justice, then he has to do this. And this is exactly what we see In Israel's history not even 40 years later though just about 40 years later what would happen to this temple what would happen to this city what would happen to this nation they tried to rebel against Rome and Rome had finally had enough of the bothersome Jews and so they rode in and they wreaked havoc Slaughtering thousands upon thousands of Jews and tearing down the temple brick by brick just like Jesus said was going to happen. So that now today, what do you have left? You have a pathetic piece of wall that idol worshipers still gather at. But on top of it, what do you have? You have a Muslim shrine, the Dome of the Rock, Why? Because God's wrath overtakes the sin of man. God is patient, but he will punish evildoers, just like he says. And so now, because of Israel's rejection, you can read Romans chapters 9 through 11 to understand that God has rejected Israel and has brought in what Paul calls the time of the Gentiles, Because of their rejection of God, God has cut them off, Paul explains. And instead of continuing his plan of redemption through Israel, he has opened it up to Gentiles whom he has grafted in to his kingdom. But he's not done with Israel, is he? Because Paul also explains that one day in the future yet to come, God's gracious Focus will turn away from the Gentiles back onto the nation of Israel. So what do we see then is the reality of this? The reality of this is that everyone who rejects the Son will experience the unending wrath of God. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verses seven to nine says, When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on, ven- and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might." But it's not as though this all happened by some accident. And it's not as though this is only a heartbreaking reality. The truth is that God sovereignly uses even the destruction of his people, even his own wrath, to show his glorious character. Romans 9.22 says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Who prepared them for destruction? God did. God did. Why would he do that? In order to make known, I'm glad you asked, by the way, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. You see, it's against the, the dark, bleak, ugly backdrop of the sinfulness of man and the wrath of God against that sinfulness that the diamond of the gospel shines so brightly and beautifully. Why did God destroy? Because it highlights his justice and it points us to the greater reality of his mercy and his grace. That's why. So God's wrath overtakes the the sin of man, but it will not be outdone by the sin of man. You see, God is so powerful and so good that he can use our wickedness in order to bring about his good purposes. Behold the wisdom of God. So God's wrath overtakes the sin of man. And then finally, the fourth reason that God's plan to save cannot be stopped is because God's mercy overcomes the sin of man. God's mercy overcomes the sin of man. Notice we've highlighted the the wrath of God in verse nine, but let's follow along the rest of Jesus's parable. He'll come and destroy the tenants. And what will he do after destroying the tenants and give the vineyard to others? Jesus then asks them, have you not read this scripture, which was a shot to the heart for them? Jesus, you dare ask us? The scholars of Israel? The godly ones of Israel? You dare ask us if we have not read the scriptures? Clearly implied, they had read them, but they did not understand them. He says, have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes he quotes Psalm 118 verses 22 and 23 to to tell them that this was God's plan all along. That they were being used by God in order to highlight his mercy and in order to extend his plan of salvation past Israel, now to the church. A church that is comprised of both Jew and Gentile, whose head is the Lord Jesus Christ. So that the full culmination of God's plan of salvation never rested in a nation, but rested in Jesus. Why can't you stop the plan of God? Because you can't stop Jesus. Peter uses this very same explanation as As Jesus explains from Psalm 118 that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The picture is these builders are building a stone building and they're scanning their material that they've got to work with. They're looking at the stones and they're measuring and they're eyeing them and they're using whatever materials that they had to use in those days. And they're analyzing perfectly every one stone and they come to a stone and they decide "Ah, this one's not good enough to make the cut. You know, like when you go to Home Depot or the lumber yard and you pull the two-by-four off and you look down it and see if it's warped. If it's warped, you don't want that one, right? So they're looking at this stone and they're saying, ah, this one doesn't make the cut. And Jesus is saying, it may not have made the cut with you religious leaders, but it was God's chosen stone. It is the cornerstone, the very foundation for the building of God. And so Peter says, in 1 Peter chapter 2, he highlights the reality that this stone that the builders had rejected was chosen by God, but it's even better than that. Look at what he said. Listen to what he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. As you come to him, you Gentiles, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. What is God doing with that chosen and precious stone? He hasn't set it off to the side in order for us to simply look at what is he doing with it. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. What is is true of the Christian? What's true of the Christian is that you're being built up on the cornerstone, on Jesus Christ, to be the spiritual dwelling of God, to be the new temple of God. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Boy, that sounds awful Jewish, doesn't it? Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, this was all fully within the plan of God that they would reject this chief cornerstone. But God had accepted him. God had chosen him. This was the precious cornerstone to God because it was his one beloved son. And so even though the wrath of God is poured out against all who will not repent of their sins, the mercy of God is poured out on all who do, on all who fall upon the stone of Jesus Christ and are broken broken because they see the great love that the Father has for the Son and the great love that the Son and the Father have for them. And they see, in comparison to the great love of God, their own wickedness, the evil that lies within their own hearts, the blackness, the ugliness. The reality is that if it wouldn't have been the religious leaders, it would have been you who killed Jesus. And yet God's mercy... Pulled you out of the fire, took you out of the darkness, broke the chains of your sin and slavery, and God said to you, "You're no longer not just a nobody. You're a somebody, and you're not just a somebody. You're my son. You're my daughter. You're my child. You, I love." You see, the sin of man is no match for the mercy of God, is it? And yet, as they see the patience of God, as they see the love of God, as they see the wrath of God, as they see the mercy of God, how did they respond in verse 12? And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. That, my friends, is how a hard heart always responds to conviction. They perceived that it was that he told the parable against them, right? They got it, they knew, which means they felt it. They were convicted. Paul lays out two different types of grief in 2 Corinthians 7, godly grief and worldly grief. Worldly grief leads you to death and godly grief leads you to repentance. They both happen, and grief is always a gift. Conviction is always a gift. Feeling bad is always a gift. Do you know why? We should feel bad. We're sinners. You should be convicted. You're unrighteous. And so what do, what do those who humble themselves and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ do when conviction comes? They repent. They say, Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me. But what do those who are resilient in their pride and rebellion do when God convicts them to the core of their heart, they say, ah, get out of here, God. They make excuses like, that was too harsh. You're just being mean to me. All the while, it's the stubborn, sinful heart that responds in that way. Friends, be careful how you respond to your sin. Be careful because the truth is there but for the grace of God go we. Keep a sensitive conscience and a soft heart to the truth of God's word and the reality of your ongoing sin because if you don't kill sin, sin will be killing you. So what do they do or what do we do then when the when the sin of our own flesh, our temptations rise up against us, we look to Jesus. Every time. We look to Jesus and we remember the love of the Father for the Son, the love of the Father and the Son for us and our hearts melt as we look at that type of love. As we see the character of God on display over and over and over again for us. Because the Father sent the Son God won't be stopped. The Lord Jesus says, I am building my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Sometimes it can feel like we're on the losing team. But you know the story. God wins. And because God wins, all who are in Christ win with him. So friends, keep praying. As long as someone has breath in their lungs, it's not too late for them to repent. It's not too late for us to intercede on their behalf, even if they don't know that they need God. Keep praying, keep working, keep preaching the gospel, because it's, the, it's only this gospel that will ever change anyone's hearts, just like it changed ours. Take courage, my friends. God will not be stopped. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness and your mercy, your power and your strength, for your patience, for your love, even for your wrath. We read the book of Revelation and we understand that one day we will praise you as you pour out your wrath on the corruption of mankind. We praise you for who you are, Lord, and we thank you for the opportunity to see your character on display. We pray that you would help us to see your character in our lives, and to be both humbled and strengthened by the truth of who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray, amen.